This FDNY Pro Podcast is brought to you by the FDNY Foundation and its partners to share experiences from the field, best practices, and lessons learned with first responders. Learn more about our mission and how you can help support New York's bravest at fdnyfoundation.org pro. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. The misuse of prescription opioids is one of the most significant public health issues in our country. According to health officials, providing access to effective care may prevent misuse and the consequences, such as overdose. So to better comprehend substance abuse, in this episode, we'll be hearing a conversation between Lieutenant Andrew Kane and Dr. Robert Friedman. Lieutenant Kane is the program director of the FDMY Counseling Service Unit Addiction Treatment Program. Dr. Friedman is the Associate Medical Director at Geisinger Marwith Treatment Center in Pennsylvania and has worked extensively with patients in the first responder communities. Let's listen in. Hi, I'm Drew Kane, your guest host. Dr. Friedman, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure, Drew. Could you tell us a little bit about the opioid epidemic that we're currently experiencing? The current opioid epidemic is actually history repeating itself. America had a great opioid epidemic starting in 1880, and at that time the opioid that was a problem was laudanum, which was tincture of opium. And that epidemic had a lot of similarities to this epidemic and that it was also people over-prescribing it for almost everything. Opiates and opioids, and that term can be used interchangeably, an opiate is from the Greek word opus, O-P-O-S, which means juice, meaning the juice of the poppy flower. And the, traditionally, the, op- the original opiates were uh, morphine, thebane, and codeine. Those are considered opiates. Opioids are any chemical, whether it's synthetic, manufactured by man, or a semi-synthetic combination of natural and man-made that have the property of an opiate. So an opioid has the property of opiates. They're meant to be prescribed for short periods of time. Instead, patients have wound up on these medications for months or even years. So there's a difference between being physiologically dependent and being addicted. It's very similar to diabetes and that people have a genetic predisposition to it and then prolonged exposure to the offending substrate. But what's unique about addiction and alcoholism, there also tends to be a history for many of the, the people who suffer from this affliction of having an emotional wound. Our members experience injuries, both on the fire side, the EMS side, the lifting of stretchers, materials, tools. Uh, So a lot of times our members are more susceptible to injury, which in turn would be someone that would be prescribed an opiate. Yes. First responders, just by the nature of their work, are really subjected to hazards that are inherent in their job description. So they face death, both direct and indirect. They face pain from physical injuries, emotional pain reacting to what they're seeing as well, stress, disrupted sleep cycles, all these things contribute to the development of addiction. They prime a brain to develop an addicted response. It sounds like what you're saying is that if first responders are already somewhat susceptible due to the work that we do, and then if you add in 
the possibility of injury and the prescription of these medications, it's kind of, um, we're getting it from both sides almost. So when and if these individuals do get addicted, what are the warning signs? Change in behavior patterns, change in personality, uh, first and foremost, lateness, absenteeism, are very common to most substance use disorders. But physiological changes that are readily noted are that pupils, while under the influence, the short-term influence of opiates or opioids will be constricted. Once the opiate wears off, the pupils will become markedly dilated. They will develop runny nose. They will develop tearing of the eyes. They'll be complaining of muscle pains. Their back will hurt. They'll seem restless, increased anxiety. Those would be tip-offs in the workplace if a coworker or a colleague were using opioid preparations. And what about their functioning? Are they limited? And we've always seen individuals that possibly be nodding off. I know that's a term you hear a lot, but we work crazy schedules, like you said. So typically an individual is tired. What would make that different than somebody that was using opiates? Is there any particular sign that we could look for? A combination of going from being fatigued to being hypervigilant and anxious and agitated. That pattern rapidly cycling. What are the best practices? How can we treat these individuals? You know, each case has to be individualized, but there are best practices as well. How is a life of self-sacrifice, how does it turn into a life of self-sabotage? And that's why the person who has the disorder, every aspect of their life has to be looked at. First and foremost, their physical health, then their mental health, as well as other things that are going on for them, their professional health, all the factors that make up a life. And those all have to be looked at. The American Society for Addiction Medicine has come up with best practice for opioids and opioid prescribing. And we're seeing that play out now. Number one, all prescribers have ability to go to their computer and look up a controlled substance monitoring program. All 50 states have them now. So if a patient comes in, the prescriber has the ability to look up that individual and see what their pattern of prescription filling has been. That gives us a better idea of what substances they've been using and, in, and the quantity they've been using them. We've also been given guidelines on how to prescribe opiates and opioids, what's too much to prescribe. And the federal government has sanctioned those guidelines. So those best practices are there for most caregivers. And as part of continuing education for caregivers, they're required to take courses today so they subscribe and follow those guidelines. So that's some of the ways in which we've been addressing in terms of, you know, being all on the same page as to what best practice is. People seem to have moved on from that prescription when the doctor is not available to provide the opioids any longer, and they've moved on to stronger medications or street medications. Can you tell us a little bit about that? There's been this reaction of society and, and to the prescribers to cut back on the opioid prescribing practices. The reality is that you know, the approval of uh, drugs like OxyContin were not based on the most firm scientific evidence. The studies that got OxyContin approved were only for several weeks of medication. The reality is that 
those medications, particularly short-acting opioids, when given over a period of months to years, don't help with pain at all. In fact, they increase pain. So now you have a patient population that source of getting a prescribed medication is cut back, so they turn to street drugs or illicit supply of medication. And what has entered the American market is fentanyl, which is very, very strong, significantly stronger than heroin, and it's being cut into other drugs as well. So they gravitate from prescription medications to fentanyl or heroin. It's an economic move as well as a practical move. They're going to be in withdrawal if they don't get it. Historically, at the Addiction Transition Program, we primarily saw alcohol, marijuana, some cocaine. That changed at some point in the 90s to where we're primarily seeing opiates. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We're seeing more opiates because there was a big campaign in the, starting in the 1990s to view pain as one of the vital signs. The same way you would do blood pressure, a heart rate, a respiratory rate, and a temperature, pain was supposed to be the fifth vital sign. This was promulgated by the pharmaceutical companies. As a consequence of that, the United States, which is 6% of the world's population, is consuming about 70% of all manufactured opioids on the planet Earth. So they were clearly overprescribed by healthcare providers. So is it possible then for somebody to become accidentally addicted to opioids? Yes, it is, with a prolonged exposure to it. Historically, the use of alcohol in uh, first responders is noted to be greater. Also, first responders have uh, behavioral issues as a result of the pressures of the work they do and the lifestyle they lead in doing that work. So there's more depression, there's more trauma, and there's more physiological stress. That stress leads to the release of cortisol, a different kind of release of cortisol, which is a hormone that helps with homeostasis of the body. But what it also does on a, in the brain is that it reinforces reward behaviors. And people only get addicted to about 10 kinds of substances and a handful of behaviors. And that's all based on changes in the brain, in the midbrain, in the part of the brain that's below the level of consciousness. Not the frontal lobes that are there for executive thinking and how we perform our jobs. It's below that level, so it becomes a very primal urge. Almost the same parts of the brains where hunger, thirst, and sexual drivers, it becomes such a primal and strong urge. The view of the addict is that they can change this. They can do something different. How can you explain something like that? People only get addicted to these substances, these specific substances and behaviors because of the, the effect that these substances have when they pass the blood-brain barrier, the way they stimulate the midbrain particularly the reward pathways, and have these behaviors ingrained. People with addiction and alcoholism lose the ability to stop using. There's no stop mechanism. Once the alcohol or the opiate or the benzodiazepine preparation hits that button in the midbrain, it will start a cycle where, much like uncontrollable eating, the person cannot stop. The midbrain will override the frontal lobe 
will override executive thinking. And that's why family members are often befuddled or when they don't understand why is the person I love doing this. It's beyond their comprehension. If you stand back from the behavior, it seems completely illogical, and it is, because all other aspects of the individual's life are stripped away, and this primal urge has to be satisfied. So what you're saying is that the, the, these individuals sometimes just can't simply stop. They cannot stop. They're programmed neurochemically not to stop. So there needs to be a medical intervention at this point where the offending agent is removed. They will go into withdrawal. The withdrawal syndromes for opiates, the person may feel like they're going to die, but they won't die, but they need to be medically supervised. And what about for alcohol? Alcohol is life-threatening. Alcohol has both mor morbidity and mortality. Alcohol a withdrawal needs to be done under strict medical supervision. There's always a concern for alcohol withdrawal seizures, and those seizures in and of themselves can be life-threatening. During seizures, there can be aspiration of the gastric contents into the lungs. A person can die on their own vomitus. So it's imperative this be medically supervised. So, for example, if somebody does enter a treatment facility for a 28-day inpatient stay, typically what would your suggestion be when that person leaves that facility? That they continue on with psychosocial interventions. And that means they continue on in therapy, seeing a counseling staff that is very, very attuned to substance use disorders, as well as the comorbidities that go along with it, which mean post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and other psychiatric conditions that might occur because they can occur together. You can have everything going on at once. 90% of the population of the United States does not carry the genes or have the propensity for alcoholism or opiate use disorder, but there is that 10%. So in your work, I understand that you do have a first responder population and that there is some unique treatment to that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and how does that differ from somebody going in that's not a first responder? First of all, first responders face specific stresses in the workplace that other people don't. First responders are subject to a different societal expectation. First responders have had different kinds of experiences, primarily with death and dying and violence, that other individuals don't have. The shared experience, the collective consciousness of a specific group can be very beneficial. There's understanding and identification when you're with a group of individuals who understand your particular stresses. It's one way of also dealing with the shame and stigmatization that perpetuates this illness. It's a way for people to be freed of that shame. To your knowledge, is there any research that has been done on a peer-to-peer -peer model? We know that these models do better in terms of maintaining abstinence for years, and those statistics are, are kept by the various licensing boards and monitoring agencies. monitoring agencies that the various states employ. So we do know that putting patients in these specific subsets 
does seem to ensure better outcomes. Interesting, because the Counseling Service Unit, the Addiction Transition Program, is mostly based on a peer-based model. One individual talking to another individual that's similar to a 12-step model. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there is some research that has been done that says this is beneficial to people in certain populations, to be with other individuals experiencing the same addiction, circumstances, life circumstances, work schedule, etc. And other individuals have had to accept the diagnosis. One of the biggest blocks to uh, success in treatment is the fact that the patient oftentimes does not accept the diagnosis. If you have a patient and the patient comes to you and you have a blood test and you say to the patient, listen, I have some, you know, news for you. Your blood sugar is 300. You're diabetic and you're going to have to change your life and you may have to take medication. The patient will not talk back to you and say, will not respond and say, no, it's not. You can't argue with a blood test. If a patient comes for an HIV test and it's positive, they may ask for you to run it again, but they're not going to deny the fact that it's not positive. But with addiction and alcoholism, despite the issues that happen to the individual, people will tend to minimize their problem, their substance problem. And what's at the basis of that minimization is the sense of shame and stigma. So peer-to-peer helps deflate that, deflate shame, deflate self-hatred, and can be very effective. Thank you for that. But also the, the consequences, you touched a little bit about consequences. We've seen individuals that have come through the addiction transition program that have faced great consequences, but still were unable to enter into recovery. What's an explanation for that? I think first and foremost, not accepting the reality of the diagnosis. Second of all, whatever the emotional wound is, has to be addressed. We know that in females entering treatment for more than five times or greater for opioid use disorders, their studies have documented that 50% of that patient cohort have been sexually molested before the age of 12. In males, the number is about 30%. We don't talk about this in American society. We don't talk about these issues. We don't talk about childhood trauma. And for some patients, the trauma may be their parents' divorce or cold or demanding mother or father, or it may be bullying as a child. But all these things factor in. We need to get to the core of what that emotional wound is. Yes, you have the physiological changes. Those prime the person. But there's almost always an injury of some sort. And that's why psychosocial interventions, the counseling that's available with individuals who understand addiction can be so very helpful. 12-step programming can be very, very helpful for people. There are some people who find it too regimented, you know, and there are alternatives available. What encouraged them to accept the disease of addiction? I think they have to surrender. There can be relief in that surrender. If they have that self-realization, and you use motivational interviewing techniques to get them to that point, that surrender will be sincere and not someone just giving you lip service. Due to the nature of first responders, the word surrender is difficult. We do have individuals, unfortunately, that have 
repeated treatments till they get to that point of surrender. When I'm dealing with patients who've had multiple treatments and multiple relapses, I ask three questions, and I ask the patients not to answer the question at this immediate time. And they're basically rhetorical questions. It's not a question that there's a yes or no answer to, even though it's posed that way. And the first is, are you tired of hurting yourself? And the reality is many of our patients are not tired of hurting themselves. They use to hurt themselves. And what is that about? So that question becomes, why am I engaged in a behavior that I know is hurtful to myself? Working with them to understand that this is self-sabotage. Second question, are you tired of hurting the people who love you? And the reality is part of this usage may be to hurt the people who love them, oftentimes because they don't feel worthy of that love. That can be one explanation. Secondly is when you're using substances, you can't analyze your own emotions or emotional responses. So hurting the people who love you, well, they interfere with your using. So if I hurt them, maybe they'll leave me, and that will solidify the relationship with the substance. That needs to be explored. And the most difficult question for patients that I found is the third question, have you fallen in love with the chaos that your life is becoming or has become? And that's a very tough question to answer. In that chaos is tremendous power. They hold their family members hostage. The chaos, the more crazy or or disorganized things become, the more motivation they have to keep using to make things even more crazy because it will rationalize the use. So to wrap it up today, I, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, addiction is a disease. It is not a moral failing. People that are in the throes of addiction need to accept that they're there in order to get help. Is that correct? The patient can often be an obstacle to care. And oftentimes the family and loved ones, you know, care more at that moment in time than the patient does. But this is not a disease of free will. This is not a conscious decision. The neurochemical changes that are occurring in the brain are occurring in a subconscious part of the brain. That's what makes addiction a medical illness. It is not a weakness. It is nothing to be ashamed of. We're all human. We've all sustained injuries in our lives. And we've all sometimes been irrational in our lives. It's frightening when that irrational behavior takes off and creates pain for both the individual and their loved ones. That's why the individual needs to be treated kindly, with compassion and encouragement. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Friedman. We appreciate it, and this has been very informative. Thank you. My pleasure, Drew. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDMY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. 
And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.